0: Let's pray again together. Holy Father, we thank you, Lord, for this precious prayer of Christ's on our behalf. And Lord, we thank you that just as as Christ prayed that after the Last Supper, that he is continuing to intercede for us. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would be interceding for us before the throne of God, that this prayer of yours would be answered in every heart. Lord, we all know the, the pull of disunity. We all know the temptation of discord and to respond in the flesh when we encounter difference. So, Father, I pray that by your Spirit that you would root that out of our hearts and replace it with a supernatural love that would reflect the love even of the Trinity. That your name may be exalted in our hearts and in our lives so that the world looking from the outside in sees that we are different. And, Lord, that that our unity in Christ would even be a form of evangelism as we live out the Christ life together for your glory and by your grace. for We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Last Supper has been eaten, and Jesus' final lesson has been taught. And now he is about to be arrested and tried and crucified. But right there, as Jesus was about to enter the most agonizing experience that anyone has ever or will ever endure— As the wrath of God is about to be poured out on him in our place, as he is about to be alienated from the Father because of our sin, what does Jesus do? He prays. As Eric Mason reflects, although Jesus was fully man and fully God, nothing in his life other than his death expressed his humanity more than his prayer life. Other than his death, nothing expressed Christ's humanity more than his prayer life. In his humanity, he was dependent on the Father and he demonstrated it by praying to him. He was united with the Father and he demonstrated it by praying to him. He loved the Father and he demonstrated it by praying to him. He sought to glorify the Father and he demonstrated it by praying to him. Now, if you want to send your troops out on a mission, it is imperative that they know what the mission is. There's been all kinds of of fatalities and casualties that have taken place because, because the troops did not know what their mission was. But there is no doubt that Jesus knew what his mission was And there was no doubt of what exactly that mission entailed. Christ's mission was to make known the Father's name, to glorify the Father. And everything, every single thing that he did was to that end. Now so with this prayer, Jesus first prayed that the Father would glorify him with the glory that he had before the world existed. He was praying that that he would be glorified in his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension. He was asking that the Father would glorify him just as he had sought to glorify the Father. And so here, Jesus returns to the subject seeking the glory of God. God. He uses the the purpose clause, that or so that, 19 times in this prayer and nine times just in these last seven verses. Ultimately, Jesus is praying all of these things so that the Father would be glorified. The glory of God is the central theme of this prayer. Yes, Jesus is praying for his disciples. Yes, he is praying for us. But the glory of God is the ultimate focus of his prayer. And so here in verses 20 to 26, we we have the last section of what is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. J.C. Ryle declares rightly, these wonderful verses form a fitting conclusion of the most wonderful prayer that has ever been prayed on earth. The last Lord's Prayer after the first Lord's Supper, so after praying directly for the glory of God, Jesus then prayed for his disciples. He interceded for them. Now he didn't pray for the world, he just prayed for his disciples. He prayed that the Father would unite them, that the Father would preserve them, and that the Father would sanctify them. But I believe that even though the, the those first disciples were the focus of, of that middle portion of the prayer. He wasn't praying just for them, but that he was praying for all of his disciples in that, us included. included. I believe that he was praying for the elect. Again, not for the world, but for every person who would ever come to salvation. Look down at verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Matthew Henry says that when Jesus prays for all that should believe on him, it is not only referring to the petitions that follow, but also to those which went before, which must be construed to extend to all believers in every place and every age. As our great high priest Jesus went before the Father on our behalf and asked that the Father would unite us, that he would preserve us, and that he would sanctify us. If there was any doubt as to the subject of the earlier part of his prayer, now Jesus clearly indicates that he prays that we, that we would be one, that we would be one like the Trinity and that we would be one with the Trinity. So are you one of those who is believing in Christ through the word of the apostles? Are you one of those people? If you are, then Jesus prayed this prayer for you. So Jesus is praying that we would be one like the Trinity. We'll see that in verses 21, 22, and 23. He prays that we'll be with one with the Trinity, then verses 21, 23, 24, and 26. He's praying that the world would know, that we would be one so that the world would know. Verses 21 and 23, and all of this is so that God would be glorified. In verses 22, 24, and 26. So first, Jesus prays that it would be one like the Trinity. Now, he'd already prayed this back in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. He's praying that we would be one, just as the Son and the Father are one. And then he comes back and prays that again in verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. And again in verse 22, that they may be one, even as we are one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always been one. In Genesis 1.1, we read, In the beginning, God. And John 1.1 is the same. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God. Before the universe existed, before time existed, there was God, perfect in unity, in complete harmony, in holy, glorious love, having exactly the same goals, having exactly the same desires, selflessly seeking the best of the others. And in that, the unity of the Trinity is the standard for our unity The unity of the Trinity is the standard for our unity. But of course, the church doesn't come close to reaching that standard. Think about the divisions that have taken place in this church over the years. Think about the number of divisions that have taken place in churches in Kelowna, let alone around the world. I'm not speaking here of those who have fallen into heresy, but in churches where the gospel is preached faithfully. I'm talking about the differences between churches that are, tr- are truly, genuinely Christian. But disunity is not a new thing, it was a problem in the early church, too. The churches in Corinth, in Ephesus, and Philippi all faced serious problems of disunity and Paul dealt with those issues of disunity in his epistles to those churches. In Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6, Paul wrote, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Think about the calling with which we've been called. Think about that. And how desperate we are for God's grace to even begin to approach, to even be facing in the direction of walking in that manner. And He describes it in verses 2. And following with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. In verses four to six he says that what the foundation is he speaks of the eternal reality. That there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Beloved, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's the reality. But we are currently living in the gap between the spiritual reality and the physical reality. We're living in the gap between how things look now and how they will be when we are gathered around the throne of God. People from every tribe and tongue and nation crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. There will be no disunity around the throne of God We will be one because God is answering this prayer that Jesus prayed. We are becoming increasingly one because God is presently answering this prayer that Jesus prayed. Beloved, we are one in Christ, He is the focus of our unity. The Apostle Paul in First Corinthians spoke of those who said, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. We are not we don't have unity in any other name besides the name of Christ. It's, it's not our, our pet doctrinal conviction. Our unity is in Christ and Christ alone. We don't have unity in anything but in Christ. Now there will come doctrinal unity because of the union that we have in Christ. There will come a singleness of mind and purpose as we grow in the unity of Christ. But unity in Christ needs to be our focus. If we're aiming at something else, we will never come to unity in Christ. And I believe, to a measure, we are experiencing these things here in this place. Where else would you find such vastly different people coming together in in one church? Just think about it culturally for a minute. We have people from from Germany, from Russia, from Holland, from England, from Australia, from the U.S., from Canada. And when you think about, about the church around the world, that it's not just just white people if you look, if you see the the church in a, in a city that, that is, is more ethnically diverse the church will quite often be reflected in the same ethnic diversity and it's my prayer that as we see people from other cultures moving to this to this city that we will see more more african canadians and and more indians coming to this church. More Asians coming to this church. As we we live out the gospel in our community. But we also have Christians here from from the single digits to 90-something. We have people here from diverse social economic backgrounds. Why have we come together? We have come together because of Christ. We have no fellowship with the world We can have no fellowship with those who believe that there is another way to heaven. We can have no fellowship with those whose authority is something other than the Bible. We who have fellowship with Christ have fellowship in Christ. We have come together to worship him in spirit and in truth. And I believe here we have... We have doctrinal unity in all of the primary issues, and I believe that we are growing in unity in the secondary ones. Now, unity does not necessarily mean a complete absence of difference. Unity does not necessarily mean a complete absence of difference, but is characterized by working through those differences with a heart of love for God and a heart of love for our brothers and sisters. This is true unity. Unity. Charles Simeon described Christians by saying, "In sentiment they are one. In affection they are also one. In the scope and tenor of their lives, also they are one. We're individuals, but we are worshiping the same one God. We're individuals, but we are seeking to be conformed in the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us to be transformed into what God would have us be through his holy book. We share many of the same values and morals. We are motivated ultimately by love for the same God. And out of that love flows love to one another. Please turn with your Bible to to John 10, verse 30. John 10, 30. Jesus declared plainly, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him, accusing him of blasphemy. They knew full well what he was saying. He was declaring himself to be God. Now there, Jesus appealed to his works as evidence that the Father is in him and that he is in the Father. He demonstrated unity with the Father by what he did. Every word that he spoke Every deed that he performed, every thought he considered, demonstrated his unity with the Father. It was love in action. Love in action. Beloved, love is the glue that binds us together in that unity. It's remarkably easy to say the words, I love you. But it's a lot harder to live love out. Especially as a person who is very far from perfect is trying to love another person who is very far from perfect. It's very difficult to live out love. But John taught in 1 John 3, 16 to 18, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's not good enough just to say, I love you. Love is a verb, love is is an action. We know the love of Jesus for us in that he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us, and that's how we know the love of Jesus for us. And we are called to do the same. We are called to lay down our lives for one another. We are commanded to lay down our lives for one another. In John 13, 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. We've talked about this before, but the commandment to love wasn't new. The command to love one another is seen throughout the the Old Testament in precept and in principle. Leviticus 19, 18 tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. The commandment to love goes all the way back to the beginning. But what was new was the as I have loved you part. Jesus was about to lay down his life for his people. And this was an entirely new development. Yes, it was God's plan from the beginning but the world was about to witness the most supreme act of love that has ever been seen or ever would be seen. A holy God was about to lay down his holy life for sinners. For sinners like you and me. For a wicked, rebellious people. This is supreme love. This is the standard for our love. Jesus provides the standard for our love. And if you love someone like, like this, if you will give your, even your life for somebody, then possessions cease to be an issue. You are more than willing to give anything to help a brother or sister in need. Time ceases to be an issue. You happily talk with someone even if they aren't just like you or even if their personality or their preferences mean that it wouldn't come naturally for you to do so. Patience ceases to be an issue. You are willing to walk with someone even if they rub you the wrong way. Forgiveness ceases to be an issue. You are eager to forgive those who wrong you because you know that you have been forgiven of far greater offenses than than. Than any that anyone has done to you, and you've been forgiven by God Himself. Prayer ceases to be an issue because you will spend time praying for those that you are, are so invested in. For prayers, that you, for prayers for people that you love in this way. Differences cease to be an issue because you are eager to humbly talk through them, praying for those in error, and when correction is necessary, doing it with, with gentleness and with respect. Now, I've seen these things. I am seeing these things as you show love for Jane and for me and for our baby as we walk through this trial. I've seen it here as we work through the differences and as sin is exposed and by God's grace repented of. I've seen it here as you've secretly given money to one another. I've seen it here as you care for each other, as you serve each other, as you speak God's word into each other's lives, as you encourage and challenge each other, as you get real with each other and share the joys and the challenges and the triumphs of life. I believe by God's grace, these things are here and are growing. Imperfectly, yes, very imperfectly. But present and growing. In verse 23 of our passage, Jesus continues, I in them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one. I see these things, but we are not yet perfectly unified. We have not yet reached the standard of love that Christ has set for us, and we never will reach that standard. But we strive towards it with the grace of God in our lives that we might stumble towards it, repenting when we fail, repenting to God and to one another, if we are in Christ, if we are truly in Christ, we will be growing in this love and we will show increased evidence of Christ's likeness as we walk our lives together. There are over 30 one another commands in the, in the New Testament epistles. Romans 12, 9, and following include several. Please turn with me there. Romans 12, 9, and following. Love one another. Honor one another. Pray for one another. Contribute to the needs of one another. Show hospitality to one another. Rejoice with one another. Weep with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Again, these things are happening. They're happening. And and I'm encouraged by it, but I know. We all know that we're not there yet. We have not arrived Now, maybe you're feeling some conviction for where you're falling short of these things. Maybe you're blind to your weaknesses. But please hear me. The answer is not just to try to start doing these things. Yes, we need to do these things. But it has to come from a heart of love. And you can't will yourself to love someone else. God has to do it in you. And so ask the Lord to reveal where you fall short in this. Ask him to grant you repentance. Ask him to fill you with his love to be able to do these things. And as he fills you with his love, you will do those things. This is the natural outworking of those who have been loved by God and of those who love God. They will love each other. They will be one like the Trinity. Next, Jesus prays that we will be one with the Trinity. Our fellowship with each other is the direct result of our fellowship with God. 1 John 1, 1.3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus mean when he prays that we'll be one with him? In verse 21, Jesus says that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And in verse 23, I in them, and you in me. There is a a mutual indwelling of the Trinity that is analogous to our unity with the Trinity. Again, there is a mutual indwelling in the Trinity that is analogous to our unity with the Trinity. Now, it's obviously not the same, but there are parallels. There are parallels of of the relationship in the Godhead, of our relationship with the Godhead. John 14, 20, Jesus said that in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. These things were fulfilled with the giving of the Holy Spirit, where the unity of the believers with God became spiritually evident. This is the sense of abiding with Christ that we talked about from John 15. To abide means to to remain, to reside, to live in and with Jesus, and it's reciprocal. We live with Jesus, and Jesus lives with us. We abide in Jesus, and Jesus abides in us. Jesus made the Father's name known and continues to make it known that the love with which the Father loved him may be in us and I in them. John 17, 26. God's love abides in us and God abides in us. We are indwelt by him. But there's also a a future component of this indwelling that has not yet been fulfilled. In verse 24, Jesus speaks of the future reality of our unity with him. He prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Now we've already received a foretaste of this in our our present reality with God, but one day we'll experience it in a way that we can only imagine now. Beloved, this is the greatest Blessing of our salvation. The greatest blessing of our salvation is not that we have been saved from hell. The greatest blessing of our salvation is not that we've been forgiven. It's not that we've been justified. It's not that we are going to heaven. All of these things are a means to an end. All of these things enable us to be one with the Trinity for all eternity. All of these things enable us to be one with the Trinity for all eternity. Would you be satisfied with heaven if God weren't there? Would you be satisfied to live in a mansion prepared for you? To walk the streets of gold? To enjoy everlasting fellowship with loved ones who've gone before? To experience a glorified body that never gets sick, that never gets tired or hungry. But if God wasn't there, the greatest treasure of heaven is God. To know him as he knows us. Think for a moment about the most beautiful thing that you have ever seen. Maybe it was a sunset over the ocean with infinite shades of of yellow and pink and orange and red. And it was slowly transformed as the sunset. Maybe it was a a beautiful morning in the mountains where the the mist hung in the air and the the sky was reflected in the water like a mirror. Or a mountain glade with, with fresh powder and trees hanging heavy with snow. Or a coral reef teeming with, with colorful fish and coral. Now the most beautiful thing that I have ever seen is not a something, it's a someone. And that moment when I first saw my bride walking down the aisle it was the most beautiful thing that I have ever seen. Think about that, husbands. And fathers, when, when you saw your child come into the world and you were, you were filled with, with a, a, a newfound awe in the strength of the woman that God has given you and the beauty of creation that you saw before you, these things are beautiful. But none of those things compare with the beauty of God. None of those things compare with with that moment when we will stand before our holy God who died for our sins. When we will see him face to face and know that that moment will continue for all eternity. Nothing, nothing can compare with the beauty and the glory of knowing God, of being with God forever and ever and ever. Now, that's what I'm looking forward to. And, and, I, and I find that as I grow in Christ, I get increasingly excited about these things. But I know that it's just a glimpse. It's just a glimpse of the glory that is awaiting me. May we all be motivated by that moment. By knowing that one day we will stand before God. Some of us need to be vo- motivated by that moment so that they will be motivated to repentance. Because there are some who are here who are still living as the enemies of Christ. They too will stand before God, but with an entirely different outcome. But may we all be motivated by the fact that we will behold the glory of Christ. May we live in eager anticipation of that moment and may we live our lives accordingly. This is what Paul was talking about in Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Have you died To sin? Is your life hidden with Christ in God? Is Christ your very life? Then focus on these things. Confess it as sin where you fail to do so. And pray that the Lord would fill you with that desire. Because once again, you can't do it by yourself. You can't make this happen. You need God to do it in you. This is why Jesus prays that we will be one so that the world may know. So that we will be one that the world may know. Verse 21, Jesus says this is why he prays that we may all be one and why he prays that he we, we may also be in us, it is so that the world may believe that the Father sent him. So that the world may believe that the Father sent him. And he adds to this in verse twenty-three: I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus wants the world to know that the Father sent him and that the Father loves his children with the same love that he has for the Son. Too often, the world has seen the church as as characterized by infighting. We need to fight to overturn this stereotype. We want the world to see our unity, not unity at the expense of the truth, but unity grounded in the truth. Remember John 13, 34, as Jesus commanded us to love each other as he loved us. But he continued in verse 35, By this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. When you love each other selflessly and you lay your lives down for one another, the world is watching. It is a very effective means of evangelism not in the absence of words but it lays the foundation and the framework for us being able to share the words if people if people see you behaving this way they're going to ask you the reason for the hope that lies in you because you're living in a way that the world does not understand Jesus said that he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's time that we turn our canons outwards. And I'm speaking to myself here as well. It is time that we assailed the gates of hell. When we are united for the glory of God, the world notices. The world is very united in its purpose against the church and against Christ. But its citizens don't really love each other. They hate each other. But when we stand together against the world, we're a living testimony that God loves us. We're a living testimony that God loves us. But just stop and think for a moment about the fact that God loves us with the same love that He has for the Son. Have you thought about that? Fellow Christian, God loves you with the same love that He has for the Son. This is mind-blowing. This is is earth-shattering that a holy God could possibly love a sinner like me and you. This is because of what Christ did for us in his life and what he did for us in his death. Because Christ lived the life that we could never live and because Christ died the death that we deserve to die and that our guilt was given to him and that his righteousness has been imputed to us. That is the basis of God's love for us. And that alone There is nothing that you can do, fellow Christian, to make God love you more, and there is nothing that you can do, fellow Christian, to make God love you less than He loves you at this very moment because He loves you with the same love that He has for Christ. What could change that? This is the perfect love for God shed out on a wicked, rebellious people like us. And when you come into contact with that love, you cannot but be changed by it. You will be changed by it. And all of this, all of this is ultimately for the glory of God. This is what that prayer of Jesus is all about. Jesus came to manifest the name of the Father. He came to manifest the name of the Father to a people. To those first disciples who would faithfully record what he had taught and who would pass it on to future generations, to us in this day who would believe because of their testimony. to be a living example that the Father gave glory to the Son and that the Son has given that glory to us, verse 22. And beloved, God is glorified when we do what we could never do on our own. You cannot create unity like this in your own strength. Left to our own devices, we will be selfish. We will be divisive. But when God works in our hearts, it changes our behavior. He changes our behavior and He gets the glory. God gets the glory. May we be a people who live for the glory of God as we demonstrate that we are one like the unity, like the Trinity and that we are one with the Trinity and that we will be one with the Trinity. As we live lives as a people who have been transformed and are being transformed into the image of Christ for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you please do this in us? Would you please answer this prayer of your sons? Would you fill us with supernatural love for you and supernatural love for each other that affects every area of our lives? Lord, that the world may see that you are God. Lord, I pray that the world would be changed, that many, even here in our midst, who are living for the world, and those with whom we rub shoulders, Lord, would be changed where once there was rebellion, that there would instead be repentance and worship. Lord, would you do that in all of our hearts, by your grace and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.